It's time now for the complete story with Rich Bot, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Rich Bot with today's complete story. Well, folks, glad to be with you again. This is Rich Bot sitting in for my dad, and he's letting his voice rest a little bit, and we thank you for your prayers about his voice and also the many wonderful comments we've been receiving on our listener comment line, 1-800-345-2621, 1-800-345-2621. And you know the kind of stories that I really like to hear on the listener comment line are stories about how you came to Christ, perhaps, because of something you heard on Bot Radio Network, how you heard the Word of God and it, it stirred your soul to accept the Lord as your Savior, or perhaps it's had uh, an impact on your family. Uh, to bring you closer to the Lord. And we just love hearing those firsthand accounts about how God has used the ministry of Bot Radio Network and the Word of God as it's preached and proclaimed over the airwaves to make a difference for time and for eternity. If you have a story like that, we'd love to hear it. 1-800-345-2621. And now on today's broadcast, I'm so delighted to have Dr. Erwin Lutzer in our studio to share with us. Dr. Lutzer, of course, you know him as the host of the Running to Win broadcast at 1 o'clock each weekday afternoon on most of these stations, and also um, also the Moody Church Hour Sundays uh, at 2 o'clock on most of these stations as well here on Bot Radio Network. Dr. Lutzer is also the pastor emeritus, I think 36 years as senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Lutzer, thank you for being with us. Great to be with you again, Rich. Now tell us, 36 years is a long time to be at one church. God has blessed your ministry there in a powerful, powerful way, and I'm so blessed I had a chance to hear you preach there. What a marvelous church and what a wonderful history is there. Because it's from Dr. D.L. Moody, isn't it? It really is. Now, he never was the pastor uh, because Moody was an evangelist, but he really began the church. It was under his leadership. It began, of course, as a Sunday school because he was taking these rough boys into churches that didn't want them. So he said he'd begin his own church. So that was 1864, which means that it's uh, more than 150 years ago, maybe 157 or 58 by now. And it was my privilege to be the pastor there for 36 years. And Rich, I feel as if I had a ringside seat, uh, you know, watching evangelicalism. And uh, well, that's why I— And you've been right in the middle of it. You've been a leader of it for many, many years. You know, and, and that's why I uh, have written a new book, which we're going to be talking about here today, that I feel very deeply about. Before I give its title, or you can give its title, let me say that I see this as my legacy book. Mm. Uh, it represents my heart for the church in America. And— um, What I want to do in this book and what I've attempted to do with God's help, and it was indeed with God's help, is to discuss real issues that the church is facing. This is not a book on how to run a better church or how to have better services. All those topics have been covered uh, frequently by other books that are also good. But this one has to do with issues that we face. In a sense, I could say that it's trying to answer the question, How do we live at a time when our light is seen as darkness? I I look at the Old Testament, and, uh, you know, it's difficult sometimes to take the Old Testament and transfer it to the New. But one of the best examples, it seems to me, is Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel, when they were in Babylon, 
they were there as a minority in the midst of a majority pagan culture. And that's where the church is today. Okay, and that's where you get the title for the book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. And, and that's not just to uh, shine a light, but to be a light in the darkness. And so the church in Babylon, uh, explain that a little bit more. Yeah, because, you know, here Israel finds itself in the midst of a pagan society. All of their supports are gone. Uh, they have no king. They have no land. They have no temple. God says, I'm going to meet you there on foreign soil. I'm going to meet you in an enemy territory. You look at the church today, and where are we? Many of our supports are gone. In fact, in the minds of the Babylonians, Marduk, their god, had won over Jehovah. That's why the vessels were brought from the temple in Jerusalem and put in the, in the temple of Marduk, because they wanted to say, our god won. And you know, Rich, if I might speak very candidly, as you look at America today, it certainly appears as if our god has lost, right? I mean, you know, we're losing the culture war all of the battles that we are facing. Well, and there's a lot of battles, uh, but a lot of people aren't showing up to fight for them. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things I deal with in the book. What does it mean to be in the world but not of it? You know, And I use the illustration of a ship. A ship is to be in the ocean, but when the ocean gets into the ship, the ship is in trouble, and the evangelical church is taking on water. Mm. As a matter of fact, I have a chapter that I hope we're able to get to in a few minutes entitled Five False Gospels Within the Evangelical Church. But um, So I try to deal with issues that the church faces today and uh, hope in, hopefully in a very realistic way. Okay, let's say this up, up front now. This book is going to be released mid-August. So as we're airing this in July, you'll be able maybe to pre-order it on Amazon or, or at your local Christian bookstore. But come August, and we're going to air this interview again in August. If it is August when you're hearing this, you can, you can buy it right now. But uh, it's coming. Uh, the Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. Did I say that correctly? You said it correctly. And uh, you'll notice some of the issues that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. You have yes. before you here something like that. What are like these a, topics? Well, for example, um, you know, I, I deal with church-state issues. What happens when the state becomes God? You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were to bow down, mm -hmm. and uh, they refused. There are all kinds of lessons that uh, these kinds of stories teach us that are very applicable today. And I mean, the very fact that they... They apparently are the only ones who didn't, you know. I don't know. 10,000 Jews went to Babylon. Where were the rest of them? They must have been bowing down. And, and these aren't just stories. These aren't just Bible stories that are kind of like uh, Aesop's fables or something. These are true accounts of real people and how they stood for their faith in very, very difficult times. You know, before we go on to other subjects, I have to emphasize what the point that you were just making. I think the greatest statement of faith in the Old Testament occurs there in Daniel chapter 3, where the king says, look, if you don't bow, I'm throwing you into the fiery furnace. And they said, we don't have to hear you, O king, about this matter. Our God is able to deliver us, and we believe that he will, but if he doesn't, let it be known unto you, O king, we will not bow. When they were thrown into the fiery furnace, they did not have absolute assurance that they were going to be delivered. But they said there's a certain line that we have to draw in the sand, and this is that line we refuse to bow. 
Now, what you find oftentimes is in our evangelical world, people are bowing. And um, I think that that's one of the reasons for the weakness of the church today. And we see our our brethren in the Middle East oftentimes uh, being beheaded because they refuse to bow. They refuse to bow. And, And I'm talking about how quickly we bow to culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe later on we'll have an opportunity when I talk about five false gospels uh, to mention, for example, the gospel of my sexual preference, how many evangelical churches are capitulating on same-sex marriage because of cultural pressure and because they have friends that they don't want to offend and they're confusing here a view of love that isn't really scriptural. So what you find is that the church is trying to take the offense out of the cross, Mm -hmm. and that was the burden of that chapter, to take the offense out of the cross, and in this way, uh, make sure that uh, they, excuse me, are in tune with culture. And uh, that oftentimes is the weakness of the church. I heard someone once say, the problem with you is you're trying to be nicer than Jesus. Because you have to remember, when, uh, you, whenever you say, uh, what would Jesus do? You have to remember that turning over the, the tables and getting the whip are among the options. But he, he took a strong stand for righteousness and truth. And he was the very essence of love. That's right. That's right. And, and what we have today is a very unbiblical uh, issue of love. Now, let me just um, mention some other issues that we deal with. I deal with technology yeah. because I think it's destroying culture. Our young people, I'm talking about even our grandchildren, addicted to their cell phones. Uh, they, it's very difficult sometimes to have discussions with young people today. I was in a young people's service and I was at the back walking behind all of the young people, and someone was beginning to speak but had not turned to any scripture. And you'd be surprised at the number of kids that were on their cell phones, watching videos, texting, doing this and this. And if the church and if our homes don't speak to this issue, uh, we are losing this generation to all kinds of addictions. But uh, and this so, is one of the chapters. This is one of the this issues. Is one of the chapters that's covered in this book: the church in Babylon, heeding the call to be a light in the darkness. There was a church in Babylon, wasn't there? I mean, a, a church in the sense that it was ancient Israel. Well, that yes, was a it was to the Lord. Mm-hmm. But and the Lord actually gave them uh, gave them instructions as to how to live. Right, and that's also a separate chapter of the book that I won't go into here. But but, but that's how, instructive to us today. Exactly and how they were to have strong families to stand against the culture and so forth, and uh, that's what God called them to. But you know one thing that we have, too, as Americans, is we have our citizenship. We have a responsibility. I tell people that uh, where Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's, there are two sides to that coin. And he was saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And and in our form of government, we are the Caesar, the, the, is we the people. So we have an obligation to exercise good citizenship as part of our obedience to the, to the word of the Lord. Exactly. And what that good citizenship means, though, is sometimes you have to stand against the culture and its laws and so forth. 
you know, where you find restrictions taking place and where our freedoms are being curtailed. Oh, ex- so all of these things are uh, very important. Exactly. But what I mean is is to get involved in the electoral process and, and work for candidates that support religious liberty and uh, Christian values and the type of values that you believe that the Lord would have and, and really is, is uh, supposed to be protected by our Constitution. Yeah. But, um, but that's an important aspect of living as a Christian in America, is having an influence and uh, letting your light shine. I really f- believe that politics is very important because who we elect has huge consequences. And yet we need to be able to do that in a sense to make sure that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the gospel. Yep. And I discuss that in the book. But let's, let's go on to another topic mm-hmm. such as transgenderism. Well, yes. Now, that's relatively new. Uh, <laughs> that's or, relatively no, I guess new. It's relatively new in terms of being a politically correct type of thing. That, that type of unusual behavior and, uh, and so forth has probably been uh, around for a long, long time, but it was never brought out into the public and to be celebrated as it is today. And here's the essence of my chapter. I think I can summarize it in a couple of minutes. In it, I tell the story of a man, I think his name is Paul Wolschult, who is a 53-year-old man who identifies as being a six-year-old girl. So what he does is he plays with dolls, and he has a mommy and a daddy, and what he wants to do is to play with other children and so forth. Now, the question I want to ask is, does he have a body problem? And by the way, he recognizes that he is a father. He was once married. He has several children. But he identifies with a six-year-old girl. Does he have a body problem or does he have a mind problem? I think we'd all agree that he has a mind problem, not a body problem. And, uh, you know, the person who cut off his arm, Mm -hmm. and I reference that because he doesn't feel that his healthy arm was really a part of who he was and part of his body. Does he have a mind problem or did he have a body problem? And when you find people who are into the transgender thing, do they have a body problem? Should the body be mutilated and brought in line with the mind, or should the mind be instructed and uh, through counseling and therapy and so forth to bring, to be brought into harmony with the body? Well, I think that indeed it is the mind. Now, in it also, I uh, tell churches how important it is to have a legal response to those in our churches who are coming to us and saying that they are transgender and they want to use, you know, a bathroom of the opposite gender, etc. We as a church need to be ready for that. We need to know what our response is. And uh, that's why I included in the book. And parents need to know how to counsel young people who come to them and say, you know, I think I'm transgender. So One of the reasons I included it is I was very anxious to discuss issues that the church really faces today. And that's a chapter in the book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. Uh, You can pre-order it on Amazon if you're hearing this in July. It's released in August, so if you're hearing this in August, you can go ahead and get it right now. But uh, where where can people get this book? Well, I think that uh, people should get used to going to Mm moodymedia.org. Uh, moodymedia.org, and uh, there are all kinds of sermons there and books that I've written and so forth. They can order it from there, or they can order it from Amazon or a bookstore, but uh, moodymedia.org. And while I'm on the subject, Rich, it is there that they can also go to find out about the tour that we're going to be having, God willing, in March of next year, March of 2019, to Israel, 
If that information isn't on yet, it will be very, very shortly, and there are people listening who might want to join us for that. I can't imagine any, anything more fascinating to, than to tour Israel with you. And will you be talking to them about what, what happened oh, yes, uh, of course. at the various locations and events yeah. and how it applies mm-hmm. today? Exactly. I, I've been to Israel a number of times, and every time it's just like the Bible comes alive in a whole new way to realize that this is actually the piece of real estate. This is part of God's creation where this wonderful, I call it a Bible story, but it's more than a story. It's a true event took place. Exactly. And one of the things it does is it confirms your faith in the yep. Bible. Yep. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Very faith-affirming. So All this, right. this book, this yes, book, this the book. Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be Light in the Darkness, what, what other issues do you cover in this book? Well, uh, for example, I have a chapter on immigration. Before I get to that, though, let me tell you a little bit about this book. It was written over a period of years, really, in bits and pieces, because I had so many speaking engagements and so many other responsibilities, and I'd write a little bit. and It wasn't coming together the way in which I wanted. And finally, I said to myself when I had quite a bit of time to actually write it. I said, Lord Jesus, this book is yours. I turn it over to you. And uh, God began to give me various uh, ideas and, uh, you know, the logistics came together and illustrations came together. That's why I dedicated this book to Jesus Christ who gave his life for the church. And uh, so I Mm -hmm. feel very deeply about it. But let's go on to another subject. Well, you, you and, have a chapter on immigration, on do you? Immigration, yes. That's a fascinating subject. Yeah. And what does that have to do with the church? Well, <laughs> it, has, it has a lot to do with the church in my mind. And as we know that there's a lot of controversy about immigration. But let me tell you about the emphasis in the chapter. First of all, I begin quite extensively to talk about Islam's view of immigration. You know, most people don't realize that Muslims have a different calendar than we do. And it doesn't have to do with when Muhammad was born or when Muhammad died. It has to do with his immigration when he went from Medina to Mecca. And uh, that hydra is really the point at which uh, the calendar begins. Because in Islam, immigration is very important. It is really a form of jihad. Because what you do is you immigrate to various places, Mm -hmm. you establish residence, and you gain a foothold in the country, and then you begin to advance your agenda. So So Islam, the spread of Islam, is all about immigration. It's all about immigration. And I quote various members of the Islamic community to... to, uh, solidify and to show that what I'm saying is correct. But apart from that, the real essence of the chapter, and this is so critical, has to do with the difference between the role of the state and the role of the church. And Mm -hmm. I find, I'll tell you why I wrote that chapter, is because I heard a pastor say something which, in my humble opinion, is very, very foolish. He said, well, we should really have open borders because it's consistent with the gospel. The gospel says whosoever will may come. And we should be able to say in America whosoever will may come. This is a tremendous misuse of Scripture, very naive and very dangerous. The role of the church is indeed to say whosoever will may come. But that's not the role of the state. Compassion Whenever a state can exercise compassion is fine, but you cannot run a state based on compassion. And what we need to do is to recognize that those who argue for secure borders 
are not necessarily hard-hearted people who don't care about individuals and the separation of babies and their mothers and all, but they just simply recognize that you really, it is true that you don't have a country if you don't have secure borders. And then I hear evangelicals saying, well, you know, Jesus was an immigrant. You know, he and his family went into Egypt and so forth. Well, first of all, we don't know that Jesus and his parents broke any laws in going to Egypt. They did come back after a while. But to be able to use that as a template for the foreign policy of the United States of America— that Jesus was an immigrant and that somehow speaks as to what we should be doing, I think is uh, very naive and a misuse of Scripture. So, I think what people are concerned about is illegal immigration. Illegal immigration, yes. And so what I do in the chapter is I delineate the difference between the role of the state because the role of the state actually is symbolized by the sword. Mm-hmm. He bears not the sword in vain, Romans chapter 13, and the role of the church, which is symbolized by the cross. So the church welcomes everybody. The church ministers to everybody. I give examples of a church that I know uh, a great deal about and a group of churches that are ministering to Syrian refugees. They've befriended these refugees. They are in one another's homes. They are building these bridges. That's the role of the church. Mm -hmm. That is not the role of the state. So what I do is to try to help people think more clearly about the whole refugee issue yes. so that we are not uh, simply carried away by platitudes. So this book, the, the Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness, this is really the result of a lifetime of evangelical ministry on your part, isn't it? Tremendous wisdom and experience that you have. Well, I trust that that is indeed so. I trust that God is going to bless this book. I, I would like pastors to have it. Mm-hmm. Because, as I mentioned, you know, one of the chapters that we probably don't even have time to get into is Five False Gospels. I, I, want, to, I want to save some time. We have about five minutes. If we could talk about that, Five False Gospels within the Evangelical Church. Can you, can you tell us about those quickly in about five I'll, minutes? I'll tell you. Yeah, certainly, okay. certainly. But then, but then get the book. Them. Then I want everybody to get yeah, the book right. so they can read it. The first uh, false gospel is permissive grace. You'd be surprised at the number of churches who are teaching that we don't even have to confess our sins because all of our sins were forgiven in Christ. And therefore, because we are under grace, we should not be under law at all. So they make such a sharp distinction between law and gospel that to put yourself even under disciplines is really to return back to a works kinds of righteousness. They believe it is wrong for us to quote the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, because that was fine for the Jews, but it does not apply today. So what you have is a tremendous amount of permissiveness all under the banner of grace. That's the first false gospel. And you'd be surprised, Rich, at how widespread this is Mm -hmm. in the evangelical church. Can we go on to the next one really fast? Mm -hmm. The gospel of social justice. That sounds nice. It sounds nice. The gospel of social justice. What people don't realize is that Certainly working toward justice is a fruit of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. What we need to do is to help people to think clearly at this point. You know, many millennials are into the um, social justice, which is really the old social gospel revisited. And they must recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, the fact—let me put it very briefly—the gospel— 
is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Social involvement is what we do for him. And if we don't keep those two distinct, we're going to find out that social justice is going to win the day and the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be lost. And that's not how people get saved. And that's not how people get saved. Now, I only have time to list the others. Please, please. Please. The gospel of the new age, even contemplative prayer. Uh, There's a book written that I deal with uh, by um, Father Richard Rohr on the divine dance, on the Trinity, which is being read by evangelicals all over, which is basically totally new age, pantheistic. The gospel of my sexual preference, the gospel of dialogue. Uh, This is the delusion of dialogue where Muslims come into churches and people dialogue with them. And in the book, I tell how there is a book written for Muslims by Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to American audiences. So I expose that. So that's very quickly. Mm. There are lots of different uh, false gospels, but I chose those five that are in the evangelical Well, tell us about this number four here, about my, what was it, sexual preference? There's sexual a false preference. gospel about that? What, well, what? what I meant by that is the uh, submission of the church to same-sex marriage. Is that kind of a capitulation where, to uh, political correctness? Uh, political correctness, and where any rebuke is considered to be unloving. Ah. And I make the statement, and this is a critical statement, that it is better to be thought harsh, though we should never speak harshly, but it is better to be thought harsh Mm. and tell the truth than to tell lies with a soft tone of caring concern and acceptance. Even Jesus to the woman at the well said, go and sin no more. And what Jesus was really trying to help us to all understand is that grace is wonderful, but it's really against the backdrop of sin. Mm-hmm. And the more, uh, the more clearly we see the sinfulness of something, the more beautiful the grace. If I may quote one of the Puritans who said that, grace is not sweet until sin is bitter. Mm-hmm. And I quote that in the book. Grace is not sweet until sin is bitter. You have to preach about sin in order to understand the need for a Savior. That's right. And to bring about the kind of conviction that leads to conversion. Yes. Well, our guest today on the Complete Story broadcast is Dr. Erwin Lutzer, the host of the Running to Win broadcast, which you can hear on most of these radio network stations at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Slightly different times on some of the stations, for instance, in Kansas City now, AM 760, 101.5 FM, and 96.9 FM. You can hear them at 6.30 each morning, 6.30 to 7. But on most of these stations, 1 o'clock each afternoon, Running to Win. Also, he is the... uh, Pastor Emeritus of the Moody Church, and you hear him preaching the gospel on the Moody Church Hour Sunday afternoons at 2. Dr. Lutzer, thank you for being with us. Now, the website, again, is Moody Media? MoodyMedia.org. MoodyMedia.org. And the book is The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. That'll be available beginning the middle of August. That's right. Thank you, folks, for listening. Once again, the listener comment line, 1-800-345-2621, 1-800-345-2621. This is Rich Bott. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.